Thanks, Keith. Good evening, everybody. If you weren't here this morning, you missed a, a, a privileged time to be able to, um, uh, that we uh, gathered around and ordained Keith into the eldership of Hope Reformed Baptist Church. So can we just applaud again and praise the Lord? Uh, thank him for his goodness. <clears throat> so be sure to uh, uh, grab him later, show your love, encourage him and whatnot. <laughs> Am I on? Yeah, I'm good here. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, can you please open up to 1 John chapter 5? We are... Uh, and I expect an enormous outcry of um, sadness at this point. We are going to finish this epistle tonight. Yeah, but it's okay, because if you come back every other night of the year, except for next Sunday, we will keep on preaching the Bible. Hoorah, yep, good stuff. So uh, uh, 2021 is going to be great. I'm uh, I yet to go, go this, this uh, week after Christmas. I've sort of got a little bit of time off. I'm going to be praying about what series we'll do in the evening, uh, uh, and uh, so I'd appreciate your prayers for that. But um, we'll, we'll be coming back into something that will bless us. Uh, but uh, at the moment, we're in First John. We're going to finish off tonight in chapter 5. We're going to be going basically from 13 onwards until the end in verse 21. And we're seeing tonight John's conclusion. John's, John's bringing the whole thing to a close. This has been an epistle that, went, uh, uh, that has touched so many um, uh, different topics systematic, of, of systematic theology that he's, he's been hitting on doctrine. He's been hitting on theology and bringing it all the way down to practice and obedience and assurance of faith and how we ought to relate to the Lord in that way. But tonight he's concluding. And the way he concludes is the way he began, which is to remind the Christians and try and instill with all the apostolic authority that he can, instill into those Christians a sense of certainty in the Christian faith, a sense of what he's going to use the word assurance. Now there's, there's one sense that we mean assurance in the Christian faith as my personal, individual knowledge that I'm, I'm confident that I am truly saved, that I see the work of the Spirit in my life. I know that if I died tonight, I would go and be with the Lord. There's that sense of assurance, which is by no means uh, outside of our scope tonight, but more so, uh, which is really the, the overarching sense that John means it in the first opening uh, verses, is that he's talking about a, a confidence in Christian life a confidence in the truth that we read from Scripture that we are able to, to just know with certainty that what we are reading, what we believe, what we sing, and then what we go and proclaim is the truth. This is the kind of, uh, the kind of certainty that led John to defy death and, in fact, to defy the whole Roman Empire. This is why he went into exile for a time because he lived and breathed the Word of God and lived with an absolute certainty. He didn't take a poll. He didn't ask people if he thought this sounded right. He didn't look for some evidence to pile together to try and win over uh, his, his confidence. He knew the Lord Jesus. He was empowered by the Spirit, and therefore he lived boldly. This is the, the same certainty, the assurance that drove the indefatigable zeal of Paul to defy, again, the whole of the Roman Empire and witness and proclaim the gospel of Jesus everywhere he went. This is the same confidence that fueled men like Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, or Hudson Taylor, who led the and started the Inland China Mission, the, the, the amazing man Richard Vombrand, who was only in the last generation in Romania, who fronted up against the, the, the communists and constantly baffled them with his boldness and willingness to be flogged as long as they leave him alive to keep on preaching. Or we think of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who even uh, uh, led a lot of the uh, Lutheran resistance to Nazi Germany. His confidence, his rock solid assurance in the reality and the truthfulness of the Christian religion. In fact, I think his wife is the hero of the story. Not his wife, sorry, his fiance. I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of my remembrance of his biography, whether they actually ended up getting married or whether he was killed beforehand 
But uh, there's this story of uh, him, him st- st- they were together in, 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 in some kind of uh, hall, some kind of public statement, and the Nazis were saying and proclaiming and doing things that were uh, manifestly unjust and against the church, and his wife turned to him and said, are you going to stand up and are you going to say anything? And he said, uh, sorry, fiance at that time, and he said, my love, if I speak that now, you will have a dead man for a husband. And she turned back and said, I would rather that than a coward for a husband. How good is that? Well, what drives a woman to be able to sort of just offer up and even bump over her fiancé onto the altar of sacrifice of life? An absolute assurance, a confidence that what we read in the Word is the truth of God. And uh, to us, it comes all the more um, bigoted when we talk about assurance. It doesn't, it doesn't bide well with our current culture. We're in a pluralistic age. We're in a, a pro- post-truth age. There is no one truth, there is no one way, there is no one uh, reality, one way to live, one purpose of life. We're we're just, we're we're all here, and it's great if you find something that works for you, but it's by no means necessary that your belief informs everybody else. This is just, this is the, the dogma of our day. If there is one dogma that everybody has to believe, it is the fact that no one has to believe anything, except that dogma, of course. This is the age that we live in, and yet into it, John writes the absolute thundering truth of God through this epistle, to restore the church that had gone through that church split, to remind those Christians who had lost friends and family to uh, the, 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 the heretics, to the false teachers, what he has called the Antichrist, to those false doctrines about Jesus. He's consoling them, encouraging them, refilling them with the confidence that is in the word of God. To read with me in verse uh, 13, um, in fact, just before we go there, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 reads this in verse 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's, he's speaking that in the Christian life, we are involved not just in, in humans uh, arguing with each other. This is not just philosophical. This is not just uh, political. This is not just relational. What we're involved in, in Jesus taking over the world with his gospel, is a cosmic battle. That the, 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 the fight for Christian truth is the fight that is, that is happening on earth, but is also going on in heavenly places. And we would be, uh, we would be uh, uh, wrong to think that that does not lead its way in and affect how the politics, the world, the culture is uh, uh, occurring on this planet of ours. And yet, while we should have a mindset that is above our, 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 our experience, that we realize it's not, just, it's not just human, this is cosmic, this is angelic, this is spiritual battle, yet what Paul does in that passage and what John is going to show us today is that the cosmic battle that occurs between God and his angels and devil and his demons really boils down to the basics of the Christian life. That we can't get uh, so high and mighty in our thinking that we neglect those basics, we will lose. And yet we should not think uh, too little of the basics of the Christian life so that we, we lose the fact, we miss the fact that these really, is, this, these really are the ammunition in the battle that God is waging against the devil and his armies. So read verse 13, we'll go through to verse 21 and I think you'll get what I'm meaning. <clears throat> he says this by way of concluding. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is 
the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that, he have, that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant authoritative word in our midst this evening. And can I get a water bottle refilled from one of our blessed deacons? Thanks, guys. <clears throat> it's been a hot day. Look back at that, to verse 13. What we see there is exactly what we were talking in our opening up speaking of assurance. This is, as we said, not merely the individual assurance that I am saved, although that comes into it, but he is instilling them, injecting them with the, the confidence, with the absolute black and white truth, Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus brought to us the revelation of the only way to be known uh, uh, by God and to know God. This is the truth. This is how he started out back in verse 1. We're speaking to you what I saw, what I handled, what we were witness to. This I proclaim to you because you remember that the Gnostic teacher or the proto-Gnostic, meaning, meaning the, the guy who came that was really the first of the, of the Gnostic teachers, uh, Serenthus, we, we see his name. Thank you, brother. We see his name from church history. Uh, he came through and he basically taught, we've, we've been going over this, that Jesus was a great man who became the Son of God at his baptism because one of the angelic spirits of the divine came upon him but then left him at the cross uh, and therefore he was great, became God, but is no more than that. But we believe, John has said, that Jesus is the true God. He is not man become God, but he is God become man. That he did not start his baptism, but he was conceived as a single-cell deity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That he uh, grew up as a real human truly God in true human flesh, and that he is one in the cross atonement that he bore he has, and his resurrection and his ascension to the Father. He has com uh, accomplished what he was sent to do. He has accomplished salvation for all those who believe in him, and therefore he's concluding, I'm writing to these who believe that. This is not so much an apologetic letter to those who have left. I'm writing to those who do believe, John's saying. I'm writing to those who are still in the church, who hold fast to the gospel, and maybe your confidence is wavering, and maybe you're unsure whether the church throughout endless ages is going to be able to stand up to the likes of Serenthus and his Antichrist descendants. I mean, if you're in a church like Ephesus, a mega church, theirs was, and uh, the whole city was filled with uh, house churches, and they had huge gatherings as well. If, if you saw Serenthus come through and take away a whole lot of the believers, you only need to be a pretty elementary mathematician to realize we've got about three or four more heretics worth coming through here and taking that many again before we're all gone. John's saying not so. 
I'm writing to you who believe that you may have absolute assurance, certainty, rock solid confidence that God will accomplish all that he has said he will accomplish and the devil cannot take away those that Christ has purchased. The assurance of salvation, and I say this knowing that many in our midst tonight may be those who are struggling with their personal acknowledgement of salvation. They are not sold on their own faith. They are they're confident in Jesus. They know that anyone who believes on him and repents of their sins will be saved, but it's their own salvation, their own faith, their own repentance that they're just not all that confident in. And this can be due to all sorts of different reasons. Our own our London Baptist Confession of Faith says in 18.4, it says, true believers, okay, true born-again believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken in many different ways or diminished and intermitted. This can be by negligence of the preserving of it, right? You just, you just sort of relax in the means of grace. Maybe by falling into some special sin which wounds your conscience and grieves the spirit. Maybe by some sudden or vehement temptation is come upon you. Or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering or allowing even such as those children who fear him to walk in a period of darkness and to have no light. Yet those children are never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith the love of Christ and the brethren, the sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which, by the working of the Holy Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. Yes, true Christians can struggle with their assurance. We do not always know why, though there are good wisdom principles to apply to it. But here, John wants them in verse 13 to be certain. I am writing this letter not so that you may believe, but so that those who do believe may be sure. When you are confident in your salvation, the effects of that are boundless. You have a deeper joy. You bear a greater witness to God and the gospel because of your ability to rejoice in it and not second guess. You're able to give God greater honor in that. You've got a greater and more powerful evangelism that as you're speaking to people, you're, you're not lacking confidence, but assuring them with the spirit-born assurance within you. And of course, there's always a greater obedience and, and, and striving after holiness when you're assured of your salvation. One commentator said, it's very hard to run with legs made of lead. And that's a perfect picture of a Christian struggling with their assurance, isn't it? Trying to get up speed trying to move themselves along, and yet their legs are made of lead. So John wants us to have the assurance because of the great effects that it brings. But look, this is why, this is why the devil wants to take away assurance. This is why he sends false teachers to rattle people, to, to mingle heresy in with their knowledge so that it would bring about ignorance that would destroy assurance of salvation. People are always more willing, more likely to hold on to some false doctrine when they are lacking assurance. It's, it's the cults that do not come in and pick off the greatest and the strongest Christian and start offering them their recycled garbage. It's always the suffering Christian, the lonely Christian, the Christian who's just not sure of the truth, who is lacking their assurance. It's always them that those cultic vultures come and snatch away. So John wants us to be assured. He wants us to be filled with knowledge, filled with confidence, and the teaching of the Word of God, listen, the teaching of the Word of God is God's primary ordained means 
to feed and reawaken the assurance of salvation when we're lacking. How do we know that? Because John wrote the Word of God for those who are lacking assurance. Now, we don't have apostles writing new epistles and new letters so that we can regain our assurance. We have pastors and teachers and elders who open the Word of God, and by the same Spirit who inspired it, we teach it and apply it to heart so that we are revived in our assurance and confidence in the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So first of all, the first ground on which the, the, the mighty uh, spiritual warfare of the world is playing out is right there in our own confidence and assurance in what we believe. Secondly, look at verse 14 and, uh, uh, and onwards. Verse 14 and 15, what we see is that the second place, the second battleground for this great cosmic battle is your prayer life. Your prayer life. John says this is the, the immediate effect of being sure of our salvation and confident in the reality of Jesus bringing us into right standing with the Father. This is the confidence that we have towards him. This is the effect of that confidence. Anything that we ask according to his will, he hears us. You hear the encouragement of the pastor's heart there with John? Like he's near 90 at this point in his life. He knows what it's like to go through periods when you struggle with prayer. He's been locked up. He's been thrown into exile. He's been suffering. He's been persecuted. He's had friends leave him. He's struggled with all of it. He knows how painful it is when you, when you make hours in prayer and you feel like they're all falling short. None of them are reaching God. Surely some of the things that I've been praying are just going unheard. God doesn't care. I'm, I'm sort of neglected at this moment. He knows that his people are struggling with that. He knows that his people, like us, have struggled with consistency in the obedience of prayer. And he's writing to them as a good pastor, saying, guys, we have this confidence. We have the confidence not just that we will go to God, but that we can constantly, continually, regularly go to God even while we live now. This is the confidence that we have, that we can go to God and there's nothing off the table. He hears us. We can pray whatever is on our heart. This reminds us of the, of the psalm that says, uh, 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 delight yourself in the Lord and he will give to you the desires of your heart. He will give to you whatever your heart desires when you delight in him because when you delight in him, his will is your desire. And so we can pray as, as John just told us. We're confident that we're praying according to your will, God. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, but your will be done if we Pray with fervency and zeal towards the accomplishment of what we know to be God's will. And if there's gray area and we're just not sure, then we delight ourselves in him and pray fervently for what comes into our hearts. We trust him to hear us because he's promised that. And he goes on, look at, look at verse 15 also. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, if we actually believe that, church, what a difference it makes to our life. How unsatisfying and undesirable that extra half an hour of sleeping becomes when you know that the Father, the God of all the universe, hears you. A person who can't even parallel reverse park. Yeah, all of you. The people who the world laughs at, who doesn't even have enough money to buy your favorite shoes, who's struggling with uni grades. You, God, listens to you. And if we know that, 
then he becomes our delight and we, in whatever we are doing, we make time for prayer. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's not... That's not a verse on its own on a single scroll that came out of heaven for a separate Bible. Okay, so we're never able to just pick that up and go, I get whatever I ask for. And of course, there's preachers who preach it like that and there's churches who are basically built off that one verse. Ask, whatever, God will give it to you because you're God, really. This verse, though, is still God-inspired. Let's not over-theologize this and then use, use John's phrase over here that he said in verse 14 of, if it be according to his will, right? We shouldn't just overly laden that so that it feels so wooden and so difficult to actually interact with God with, as if you pray for something you want and then just sort of deaden all desire or expectation by saying, well, if you will it. It's not as if we should, we should just, uh, really, if we're going to be safe theologians, just sort of scratch that verse out because people will become too presumptuous. They'll pray too fervently. They'll desire, they'll callous their knees too much. No, we still need to realize this verse is in context. If the rest of the New Testament is our Christian guide, if the rest of this letter is what we're pouring into our hearts and we're pursuing righteousness, we're desiring the word of God, we're zealous in fellowship, we're seeking to glorify God in all things, then go with your heart's desire and pour it out before the Lord in fervor and submission to whatever he wants, but pour your heart out in fervor. And if it's wrong, He'll guide you. The Spirit bears with us in our weakness through prayer. But go. Go and start to plead and ask zealously. When we do that, the effects of the prayers of the saints is that the kingdom of God comes. We increase our own confidence and communion with God. The church is strengthened and purified, and the enemies of God are toppled or converted. This is what we see in the book of Acts. Those very things happen on the heels of a praying church. And therefore, what the devil wants to bring in, this second battleground of the cosmic warfare of the universe, is that the devil wants to discourage Christians from praying. He wins a a triple victory when you don't pray. First of all, because you're sinning through prayerlessness. That's one victory. Secondly, though, is that those things and those people that you would pray for go unprayed for, go unanswered. James says, you have not for, you ask not. And thirdly, the the flow-on effect of the answered prayer, which gives us so much joy and strength and confidence and encouragement to pray again, is also lost. And so the cycle continues. If the devil stops you from praying, he wins a triple victory in the one go. Discouragement is normal. Impatience is normal. Feeling unheard is normal. And yet the promises should become our new normal, that we push through those dry times to try and seek the reality of what John says there. If you can't read verse 14 and 15 and say, looking back, that at least at some point in your Christian life, this was, this was your experience. You remember God answering prayers, working through you powerfully. My application is not that you're unsaved, but that there is so much of an inheritance for the child of God that you are yet to grasp. Prayer answered that is poured out zealously to the throne of God. That is the battlegrounds of the kingdom warfare. And then we see, and this is, this is a pretty uh, troublesome text, a lot of argumentation goes on here between about, uh, you know, verse 16 to 19. Let me read it as a bunch 
And let me say, I think that the theme here is, is again, an ordinary part of the Christian life. Let's just remind ourselves that involvement in a local church is the bare minimum for Christian maturity in the New Testament. Let's just say that. If you're not in a church, you're not even receiving any of the epistles. You're not receiving apostolic teaching. You're not under the pastoral care. You're not safe from the heretics. You're not in getting the, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and, 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 uh, and baptism. Devoted involvement in a local church is bare minimum for Christian, Christian maturity. But part of that is the process of brotherly and sisterly church discipline. Now, we use that word, and sometimes it sounds culty because people just think that church discipline is when you, you sin enough times or you, miss, you speak against one of the, the pastors, one of the anointed ones, and then they take you to an office and try and exercise a demon and whip you back a couple of times and kick you out, and nobody talks to you anymore because you're unsaved and you're untouchable. That's what people think church discipline basically is, right? The, that it's, it's, uh, it's just the, what happens when you commit the big sins, you get kicked out. Let me tell you that church discipline is like your immune system. Church discipline is like your immune system. It's, it's not just when you get the huge fever and the rigors and, the, and, and, and all of the other stuff that happens when your immune system is at full pace. It's not just then that you've got something in you that needs to be thrown out. It's every single moment. You're handling germs. You're touching your face. You're eating some things that one of the guys cooks out in the dinner supper. Something happens. You're always putting into your body things that needs to fight, and it's a constant process, even when you don't know what's going on, and it's the same with church discipline. Church discipline is just the process of brothers and sisters encouraging one another, building one another up, and also holding one another back from great sin. But it starts with the small things. How you're talking. Maybe how you're dressing. Maybe what you're posting, maybe what you're saying, maybe the way you're saying things, maybe what you're, you're failing to say, maybe what you're failing to believe, maybe something that you're believing which just sounds a little off. It starts small and church discipline becomes more visible and more ugly when those little sins become unrepentance on a broader scale. But let me start say that's what I think John's talking about, the constant ebb and flow of supporting one another in the walk of Christ. Verse 16 if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, towards God, right? He should ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, right? Reclarifying that. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the devil, sorry, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see the flow of what he's saying. Brothers, if you see your brother, sisters, if you see your sister walking, tolerating sin, then, then go to the Lord before you go to them. Most cases, that's possible. Sometimes it's urgent. You need to speak to them immediately. But most times, go to the Lord. Ask the father to bring back his daughter. Ask the father to re-encourage, re-convict, re-exhort his son, and the Lord will do it. What an amazing encouragement. He will bring them back if their sin is not the sin that leads to death. There's the big question. How do you know a sin is the sin that leads to death? Well, in one sense, the sin that leads to death is no actual sin at all. It could be any sin. The sin that leads to death is just unrepentance. 
I mean, it could, be, it could be stealing five cents a week from your employer. That sin could be enough to have you recognized as a non-Christian and never again darken the doors of a Bible-preaching church, not because of the size of the sin, but because of the extent of your unrepentance. Somebody talks to you about it. You refuse to stop. You defend yourself. You dig your heels in, in unholiness, in unrepentance, in disobedience. You dig your heels in. You end up burying yourself in excuses. And the unrepentance shows that you are not born of God. And, and this is John's sort of theological background to the application. He says there's sins that lead to death. We saw that in, in Corinth. Some people were so abusing the Lord's table, they died. There were some people in Acts 5 who were lying about how much they were giving so that they could get a reputation in the church. They were dead too. There's sins that Christians can commit that God kills them to leave his church healthier for it. However, I think what John is saying is that the sin that leads to death in the Ephesian context, to the people he's writing to, is that sin of apostasy that leaves the true gospel of Jesus Christ that they once held to and embraces unapologetically a, a gospel-denying heresy. That's what I think he's talking about. It's as if he's saying to Christians who still hold out hope that the false teacher surrenders because they're a sweet old British lady, right? Not living in there. That's dumb. But right, in our, in our modern day, they're just a sweet hearted person. They don't like the preachers who yell. They're just more sweet-hearted than that. They sort of skip over the cleansing of the temple and those evil, you know, uh, harsh chapters in Scripture. They're genuine Christians. They're just so, so kind, and they're really holding out hope that these false teachers will, will be converted. And John's saying, don't have hope for that. The Christians who once held fast the gospel and now defend a heresy, don't hold out hope. I'm not saying that you should pray for them. You should have no assurance when you pray for them. You should have no assurance before the Father's throne that he will bring them back. They've committed the sin of apostasy. Hebrews 6 says there's no coming back from that. What he's encouraging them. Now, he doesn't say don't pray for them. He just says I can't give you assurance for that. What he encourages, though, he's making such a grand promise, a, a normalcy promise. He's saying the normal trend is when your brothers and sisters are in sin when they're wandering into false doctrine or into sin or into unrepentance of any kind, pray for them, seek them, and the Lord will bring them back. On that, you can have assurance. So there's the practical, and there's the theological in verse 18, 19. We know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why can we seek each other? to pursue repentance because we know that the true, the true children of God will respond to that. But those, as chapter 3 told us, those sons of the devil that are in our midst, they will not respond. They'll, they'll push back. They, they once appeared as true Christians, but they will continue to push against repentance, push against the law of God, find theological reasons why they don't need to obey God's word. Or they'll find a teacher that tickles their ears like Serenthus They'll hold fast to that gospel, which is no true gospel, and commit the sin that leads unto death. But look at this. In verse 18, we see this beautiful reality that when the church is seeking each other, when your brother sits you down and mentions something to you, or, or maybe, maybe says something to you on the aside in the foyer after church, when your brother says something to you, or your sister mentions something to you, sends the message, has, has you over for coffee, mentioned something that, that you ought to be working on. Do not simply 
think, now, now, by no means is everybody always right when they're saying that, but at least know this. Inasmuch as they are speaking the truth of God into your life, see past them. If you look at them, you're going to start coming up with excuses why they need us talking to. Right? They're not so perfect, right? Who are they judging you? You've got a problem with how they're living as well. Don't look at them. Look through what they're doing to the words of him who is speaking through them. Verse 18 says that those who are born of God are protected or kept by him who is born of God. It would probably be better translated as those born of God, the Christians who have been born by his spirit, are kept by him who was begotten of God, the Son. Jesus is the one. He's the shepherd. And as your brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters come and talk to you, they're just, they're just the crook in our good shepherd's hand. They're just the ones he's sending to talk to you because that's how he's ordained to speak to his church today. Not through voices from heaven, not through constant divine revelation, not through apostles, not through the, the spiritual voice in the mind, but through your brothers and sisters. We are the body of Christ, looking out for one another in love as an immune system in a body. I love that. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, who was born of God, the Son, protects him, protects you. He's in the active work of protecting you, and the evil one, therefore, does not touch him. Here's another, verse 19, a theological foundation for why we pursue holiness together through the constancy of little steps of church discipline, encouragement, spiritual immune system, verse 19, because we know that we are from God. We know that we're from God. You love when I push you towards holiness more. It stings a little. You love that burn. Like a gym junkie loves the burn in his triceps. You love that burn. We're born from God. We're from God. It's the world that lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see the contrast? You're not in, my brother, when I'm coming to you and, and I'm, I'm rebuking you and I'm sitting down with you and encouraging you back to the, the love that I've seen in you before and now see waning, I'm saying, I notice that you're born of God. You're not under the, the power of the evil one. You're not kept in his bondage. You're not chained down by the law. You're not kept under the, the sway of false doctrine, demons, and the enemies of God. You are born of God. Let's see some of that childlike faith towards the Father in action. What a great encouragement that is. Not a discouragement, not an insult, but a call to, to, to perseverance because he knows the theological foundation is those born of God will continually repent. They'll keep on sinning, but they'll keep on repenting. And in that sense, they don't stay in the pattern of sin, which is what verse 18 meant when he said, they do not keep on in their sinning. Verse 20. So we've looked, the, the foundations or the, or the grounds of the battle are your assurance, your confidence in the truth of God, your prayer life and our prayer life as a body, our brotherly, sisterly church discipline or accountability one to another as we love each other. And lastly, really our, uh, the source of eternal life, where we look for meaning, for authority, for satisfaction, for joy, for pleasure. Read, read with me verse 20. This is going to conclude the, the seven times in this short passage that he's used the phrase, we know, or I know, or you know. 
This is a passage of certainty. The passage of truth. The passage of exclusivity in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He doesn't want his people to believe that because this is spiritual, because this is faith-based, maybe, maybe some of the younger Christians, especially growing up in Christian households, you need to hear this. We're not saying when we call to faith, when we call to intellectual belief in Jesus and, and committing your life spiritually to him, we don't mean turn off your intellect, turn off your brain, stop thinking and just believe. That's what you're going to hear in, uh, in teenage girl novels and bands and romance, whatever. What, we're not doing that. It's not stop thinking and follow your heart. It's not stop using your mind and follow your spirit. What, what John is saying is that there is a, a level of understanding that the whole world has. We looked at this in one of the earlier chapters. Everybody has simply because they're born, uh, made in the image of God. We have brains, we have eyes, we have senses. We can see the world. We can do our maths, we can do our, our history, and yet there is an understanding that does not bypass our mind, but is enabled by the Spirit in our mind that only those born of God have. John's confident of this. He doesn't think it's arrogant, he doesn't think it's proud, and he doesn't shy away from saying it. He said, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that he is not given to the world. The reason they don't understand is because they have not been given understanding. Oh, how we pray that our loved ones, our friends, unbelievers, would gain that understanding through the Spirit. So that he gave us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And that can feel like just a random exhortation, like maybe John had a sixth chapter he was about to start and the, the toast was burning and he accidentally forgot to go back and finish it later and he just hit send and you can't get it back when you send your email. Like, no, 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 that, that's per, that, they're the two sides. That's all that the devil has to offer. When, when the Son of God has come and given understanding and eternal life in him who is true and you know him who is true and eternal life is in the one true God, all the devil's got is idols. Keep yourself from idols. And he doesn't start off another paragraph showing the, the folly of idolatry and the, the silliness of chasing the Gnostic gospel and, and the, the, the fleeting pleasures of all the things in the world that if you love them more than you love God, then they are your functional idol. He doesn't go on to that. He just, he just shines. I love what Calvin says. He says, uh, I, in fact, sorry, it's John Piper speaking of John Calvin's institutes, and he says, if you have never seen the sun, you'll be pretty impressed by a streetlight. You've never seen the Grand Canyon, you're going to be pretty impressed by the cracks in the pavement. Never seen the Pacific Ocean, you're going to be amazed by puddles in the, in the ground. You've never seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the gospel of faith alone, that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus makes us right with God to be pretty impressed by free sex, lots of money, reputation, thousands of likes, media attention. You can be pretty impressed by that. A tiny little glow compared to the shining glory of the one true eternal God made manifest in Jesus who doesn't just tell us the truth but brings us into the truth and brings us into him who is true. 
there's this multi-layer reality of, it's even hard, the theologians say, when they start commentating on this text, it's hard to know at what point he's talking about truth as an entity, truth as Jesus Christ, or truth as God. They're all mixed up. What Jesus does is come as the truth to bring us into the truth, and by bringing us into the truth, we are one with the eternal God in Ephesus, they had to be told, keep yourself from idols. They had the great ancient uh, 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 temple to Artemis. Uh, they, were, they were a city filled with idols and black magic. Even see one of the, the main instigators of opposition to the gospel in Acts is that uh, uh, the silversmiths who make all the idols started going out of business and got very annoyed and so started casting down Paul and the Christians because they wanted to keep their business. And all these people are becoming Christians. And they're, well, they're not under the control of the evil one anymore. They're not worshipping our, our polished metal. What a tragedy. Well, Ephesus was filled with idols. In fact, we, in fact, we see in Acts chapter 19 that there was, a, there was a, quite a repentance day in the church when, when, when uh, all of the Christians brought out their black magic books that they didn't know they weren't supposed to be reading. It was on the... You know, today, it'd still be on the bestsellers list at Kurong. They just go in, they, they bought a Pauline epistle, they bought Jesus Calling, they bought Black Magic, they didn't know there was anything quite so bad. All the, all the popular pastors were, were promoting it, and so they're all reading their Black Magic, Dark Arts, along with going to church on Sunday, and when they realized the sin of this, they brought it all together, they threw it down a well and burned it. Histo uh, historians found, and archaeologists found, a, a deep well in Ephesus filled with all of these ancient books that have been burned. Keep yourselves from those idols, he's telling them. Keep yourself from the, the cheap imitation gospel that the Gnostics bring. And every generation of Christianity has to hear this anew. Every type of, of, of woke gospel out there, of Marxist gospel out there, of, of intersectionality gospel out there, every emblem of, of liberal theology that doubts the, the veracity of the scripture of God, any kind of, of inclusivity that says you don't necessarily have to believe in Jesus to be saved, any type of, of that gospel needs to be thrown down as a cheap imitation, a, a little metal piece of idolatry compared to the shining Son of God who came into the world to give us understanding and bring us into the truth. Every generation has to be on the alert against imitations. Keep yourself from idols. The Gnostics were called Gnostics. It's a word that means knowledge. The Gnostics. They had, they had a little bit more than your apostolic scripture. You know, you guys have got the gospel. You have that Jesus. You have the old doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's cool. But the angels have been telling us more. There was, there was this two-tiered Christianity. Those who were elevated, they heard from God. They had the additional knowledge, the, the shining brilliance of the, of the inner spirit voice that they had heard, the knowledge that you just couldn't get unless you went through the experience. Don't bother going to your Bible to try and read it. It's not like the knowledge of Jesus that is open to anybody with the Spirit of God to understand. No, this is an exclusive knowledge. What John wants us to know at this point, that while all sorts of reimaginations of that come up through history, there may be lots of systems, false religions, false gospels, or heretics that come with a knowledge that seems more special, but it is not more sure. They are basing their feet in midair. They have no foundation because they do not have an inerrant, final, 
plenary, inspired word of God. That's why all of their prophecies, their religions, their doctrines all conflict and conflate. They're inconsistent because they don't have what we have, a revelational epistemology. How do we know truth? God said it. He said it through his son. He said it through his spirit. Now he speaks it through his scriptures. This is our confidence. So to anybody outside of Jesus tonight, the reason that Jesus is offered as the one way to the Father is because there is no truth but in Jesus Christ. There is no joy but in Jesus Christ. There is no peace but in Jesus Christ. There is no certainty of truth but in Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins except for in Jesus Christ. There is no lasting satisfaction. There is no knowledge of God. There is no eternal significance to your life. There is no freedom from sin. There is no freedom from the devil and his demons except for in Jesus Christ. So today, believe on him who lived for you the life you couldn't live but the Father demanded, who died for you the sin that you deserved, sorry, the death that you deserved because of your sin, that the Father demanded, but who rose for your justification and now lives evermore to receive and forgive anyone who trusts in him. Repent and believe in this one eternal life, the truth incarnate, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, your word is truth. As Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, there are, there are some of us tonight who are, who are giving in much to cowardice because, because we, we are tempted to believe that there's a virtue in doubting the promises of God, doubting the word of God in front of those that we love, doubting the, the truthfulness of Christianity in front of other people who aren't so impressed. Father God, I pray that you would push against that in us. Would your Holy Spirit wash that clean from our hearts? That if we're called fools for a rock-solid belief, in the scriptures, then Lord, we will own that with joy. Lord, there are others who are lacking assurance, not so much intellectually, but on a spiritual soul level. I pray that you would give to them a taste, a re-remembrance of the firm foundation that there is in Jesus before the, the, before the throne of God, before the law of God, that he brings us into firm and fast and everlasting justification. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would be active in, in bringing us to bend the knee to the truth of Scripture and therefore walking in obedience, where we pursue assurance if it's lacking, where we pursue zealous prayer lives because that is how you, you, you move in this world, that we would pursue uh, that, that immune system of, of keeping one another accountable for our sin, and, Lord, that we would keep ourselves from every cheap imitation of gospel truth. But you, Lord who are begotten of the Father eternally, Jesus Christ, you keep us from the evil one and all like idolatry. I pray, Lord, that you would preserve us, build us up, give us assurance, bless us as we seek to glorify you. And everybody said...